Welcome to Park Ave Baptist Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of our Sunday sermon. I'm Darcy Jarrett, pastor of worship, advocacy, and arts. I'm Himra Chenault, pastor of community engagement and stewardship. And I'm Lanta Carroll, interim pastor of Families in Formation. Park Ave is a bold, inclusive, and creative community where everyone is welcome. We uplift voices and identities that are marginalized elsewhere. We affirm all ethnicities, racial identities, ages, socioeconomic groups, gender identities, and sexual orientations. Because we hold to a theology that refuses to other anyone. At Park Avenue, our leadership model is non-hierarchical. And we practice an open pulpit. Where you will hear a multiplicity of theologically trained voices from different backgrounds, and social locations. We don't just preach and talk about deconstructing systems and structures of power. We We practice it. Through this podcast, we hope you will be inspired, encouraged, and challenged. Listen Listen with with us now. Hey, well, thanks for inviting me to uh, be in your space today and to chat with you. Um, A couple of things. Bear with me because suddenly the need to urinate has intensified. So this is good news for those of you who like brief sermons. Um, The second thing is, uh, is just as worship was going on, my heart was stirring. And I know that many of you here are Baptists, but I'm Baptocostal and lean heavy on the costal. Um, And as the spirit was stirring in my own heart, I began to think. And I want to challenge each and every one of you to live into your authenticity, to become who you are and who you're supposed to be. And I think sometimes we're so afraid and um, ashamed of who we are and we've got all this stuff and we're like, well, God, I'm really depressed or God, I'm really suffering right now or I don't really belong to this group of people or I'm a misfit. And I just want to encourage you that God uses the misfits of the world and God uses people who are depressed and God uses people who are brilliant and who think differently. And so from the cradle, from the womb even, God knew you. God knew who you were. God knew authentically who you would be. So live into that. Continue to do what you're called to do. Work through your hurts. Speak out for the oppressed. So there's that. All right, so I brought some worksheets for you guys. I know you're like, Jesus, Beck, it's Sunday. Do we really have to work? No, you don't. But I wanted you to play along with me if you would and make this a little bit interactive. There's some questions on here, and and feel free to go through them as you want to. You don't have to. You don't have to get too deep. You don't have to share this with anybody. You don't have to keep it. But just go through it and think about it. Some of those questions may be like, in my faith formation, what were some of the purity codes or things about holiness that I heard? Or what about my family of origin? So think about some of those questions. So Cornelius, right? A centurion. Peter shows up. Acts 10. All this stuff has been happening. And to get to Cornelius and to give you some background, I'm going to have to go back to some of the Jewish scriptures. You guys okay with that? Going to pop around a little bit. Uh, And I want to tell you a bit of my story. So like I said, I was raised Pentecostal. I'm uh, eight generations from Georgia. So my uh, cracker Appalachian relatives uh, came over to this place. Uh, intermarried to others who were sharecropping, including indigenous people and people who have more melanin than I have, if you know what I'm saying. Or as my grandmother would say, you never know what's in the log pile. (laughs) But we settled in a land that had been taken away from the Cherokee and the Creek. 
And in 1830, received a land lottery, and I grew up fairly poor and from eight generations of poverty in Appalachia. And a lot of Jesus, a lot of King James version, a lot of taxidermy, a lot of camouflage, if you know what I'm saying. And a lot of holiness and a lot of purity codes. And in Georgia in this time, really the only established churches were sort of the Wesleyan Methodist circuit riding churches that went around. So everybody was sort of Baptist Holy Coastal, all the kind of stuff, right? Everything, all the things. And the circuit riding preachers would visit. And so my people have always been in church and around church, and my people have always been hurt by church as well, including my dad. And me and my dad didn't get along, but that's another story. So what did I hear about holiness growing up? Sex, 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 sex. Don't masturbate, don't look at porn, don't have sex before you get married, all those sort of things. And for me as an individual who was molested in church, no less, that made me feel pretty, pretty nasty, pretty unrighteous, pretty unclean, right? And there was a whole lot of other things. Don't drink, don't chew, don't smoke, don't dance, don't go with girls that do, right? Those kind of things. Clothesline religion, if you will. And some of you may have heard that growing up. Maybe your grandparents did, maybe your parents did. But it was an outward form of holiness. But it wasn't outward facing or it wasn't in right relationship, which when we look at holiness, when we look at righteousness, when we go back to the Jewish scriptures, we find out they mean something a little different. So let's go back to the Torah. And uh, there's a gematria of the Torah, which is, means that it takes the letters of Torah, right? And those numbers add up to 613. Well, that's the number of laws that there are in the Torah. Two of those came from God. 611 came from Moses. Uh, in Leviticus, the wandering people of God read instructions on how to live their life. And these were laws that were given to people who were living in the desert. These instructions set them apart and differentiated them from the previous cultures who oppressed the Canaanites, right? The Assyrians, all, the, all these groups of people. Leviticus is a boundary setter between the people of God and the Canaanites. Near Eastern ancient pers persons often dominated enslaved persons or conquered people by having sex with them in the position of a woman. They murdered children in cultic practices. They valued prophets over people. They sacrificed swine, snakes, and unclean animals to Canaanite deities and worshiped foreign gods. Israel was a holy nation, and the law urged followers to separate themselves from other nations and cultic practices. These codes, these laws, were things on wearing, not wearing mixed fabrics, like Leviticus 19.90, or having sex with a wife who is experiencing menses, uh, Leviticus 18.9. This is going to get gross. Y'all, the Bible is gross. So just wanted to brief that. I realize there may be some folks in here who are uh, under 14 in the room. Um, parents, it's going to get a little gross, so I'm sorry if we talk about poop and pee and all kind of other stuff that comes out of bodies. I got to say poop in church. <clears throat> My inner eight-year-old is now happy. Don't sacrifice children to Moloch. 
Some scholars say that these boundary laws have to deal mostly with each man's personal property. Some scholars suggest that these codes were there to affect the nature of things. Other academics link holiness with wholeness, contending that liquid displaced in life cycles, such as sex, childbirth, death, and sacrifice, was unwhole, such as blood, semen, and other fluids. Scholars argue why and what these purity codes represent. The precise meanings do not stand out even to the Judeans of post-exilic age. Does uncleanliness merely result from the contact with animals or contagion and not deal with matters of the heart? Are purity codes an outward symbol of an inward intention? And did an expression of outward symbols really count as much as the heart? So the word for abomination in much of the purity codes is in Leviticus is the word toebah. This word is often translated as taboo or relating to the worship of foreign gods. Others suggest the word directly related to unclean or impurity. In Leviticus, following the strict letter of law, was that necessary? Is that salvific for the people of today? The sacrifices ceased several times within Jewish history. Modern day observant Jews no longer sacrificed bulls and cows at a temple. Neither did the Hebrew people in the exile between 589 and 539, or when Antiochus raided the temple in 168 BCE, or after the destruction of the temple in 70 CE. Furthermore, these are references in apocalyptic literature in the prophets that the functioning of sacrificial cults were not essential. The prophets seem to demand a different type of holiness, a different righteousness, and a different justice than the purity codes put forth. As a matter of fact, righteousness, sedek, means justice, and righteousness, which gives a whole new spin on seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What if we sing it? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his justice. Sedeka, justice and righteousness, related to justice and relationships. Misfot, which is another word for justice, seems to mean justice with dealing with someone in social order, such as in courts or the public place. This was the holiness that God required. Righteousness in the world, instead of liturgies and offerings, pleased God's. All that other stuff seemed to get in the way of loving God and loving people. The prophets loved to scream at the temple system, begging it to repent, to come back to justice, away from its cult of socially established tradition and parroting of beliefs versus the practice of relational holiness. From Isaiah 1.10, we hear the prophet Isaiah talking to the temple people. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What is it to me, your multitude of sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, of fat of fed beasts, and I do not delight in the blood of bulls, of lambs, or goats. When you appear before me, who asks this from your hand? You trample my courts no more. Bring offerings is futile. Incense is an abomination to me. Your new moon and Sabbath feast and all these callings of convocations, I can't endure your solemn worship assemblies. When you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your doings before, your, before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Isaiah rails against the temple system and their purity codes. He even calls the people, the religious, the righteous within the temple, Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Gomorrah. Is it because those religious people were enjoying sex or raping people? Or what does that mean? It's because Yahweh is fed up with purity codes and sacrifice, and they've forgotten hospitality, just like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah forgot hospitality. Now, when Peter says to the observant Jews here, you know it is unlawful for a Jew to visit Gentiles, he has misheard something that's come down through the temple system, but was never actually part of God's plan. Hospitality was always part of God's plan. As a matter of fact, when we look up the Greek root word for hospitality, it is xenia, where we get such words as xenophobia. We were always supposed to welcome the stranger, the alien, into our home, the sojourner. Hospitality was practiced in Near Eastern ancient cultures. We can practice hospitality today. And I'm not saying that we do that blindly or without boundaries. I have a child in my home. I'm not going to invite all y'all over for dinner. Statistically, like six of you are creepers, right? Just putting it out there. We can practice hospitality with boundaries. Amos seems to spur a similar, similar message, and you've all heard Amos 5. You've probably heard it a lot. But Amos goes on to recount these things, and he says, I hate your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'll not accept them. And the offerings of your fatted animals I will not look upon. Take away the noise of your worship. I will not listen to your songs. But let justice roll down like rivers and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. At this time, religion became equated with a celebration of national optimism and a preoccupation of how blessed the ritual observers were. In fact, they were so blessed materially that there was great economic inequity. The poor walked around hungry while the temple goers ornamentally ornamentally donned gold and fine clothing. Amos tells them to shut down their worship, their ritual, their sacrifice, and all their pomp and circumstance and to care about their neighbors. Ezekiel says the same thing. When he comes back, he begins to equate Israel with an adulterous woman, and he called her sins worse than Sodom. He also says that Sodom did abominable things, the root word here, toebah. So did they do taboo things, things that would be similar to spreading contagion or gang rape, which would break down a man's property and dominion, or those things cultic practices? According to Ezekiel, Sodom and Gomorrah did not take care of the poor or needy either. They did not act with justice and righteousness. Perhaps they also broke ritual purity. But is ritual purity necessary to please God? So what does Micah say? And you all know Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what should I come before the Lord or bow down before myself on my God most high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams and ten thousand of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression or the fruit of the body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The prophets show disdain for legalism and hatred towards religiosity. Though the prophets weep over the people of God and though they pray over the people of God, they get strong in their face with truth about justice. 
In biblical faith, the practice of justice is the primary expectation of God. God requires righteousness or justice, yet we accidentally see the legalists negating justice in turn for religiosity parading as religion. Israel possesses all the externals and whitewash of true religion. Fine buildings, passionate displays of worship and ritual, solemnly impressive sacrifices, great praise bands, and well-trained choirs. Yet those varnishes, facades, and externals do not beget communion with God, which is justice and righteousness. Far dealing with these others are the indispensable conditions for any traffic with God. How much of our modern church is organized in varnishes, facades, whitewashes, and externals? How much of our right relationship with God and others is about justice? Is loving our neighbor about overriding some rules? Some would say that the New Testament is divorced from the Jewish scriptures. I grew up hearing that. Well, we live in the new covenant, so we don't have to worry about eating shrimp and bacon no more. Hallelujah. Some say that we never have to live under the law again. But I think in a way we do not live under legalism or ritual purity, but we should always live by the Spirit, which will bring about the two greatest parts of the law, which are what? I heard it. Say it again, church. Jesus himself never broke the law. He never sinned, according to some. But he fulfilled it in a way outside of religiosity of the time. He met with those considered unclean, nada, toeba, the diseased and the sick, Matthew 4, a woman caught in adultery, a half-breed, theologically unorthodox Samaritan woman who was sleeping with a man she wasn't married to, lepers, Matthew 8, a Canaanite woman, Matthew 15, a Roman centurion and his slave boy, Matthew 15, a dead person, Matthew 9. The list goes on and on and on. Jesus observed righteousness rather than purity code legalism. He plucked grains of corn on the Sabbath. His disciples did not wash their hands before they ate, Matthew 15. He hung out with drunkards and tax collectors. Jesus was harsh in his treatment with many religious persons, and he responds back to them many times. He throws down their purity codes with one answer. Matthew 15, 10, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that's what defiles them. There's a double entendre in there somewhere, folks. He then explains to his disciples that they are not defiled by what they eat or what customs they have, but rather what thoughts rule their hearts. This very next pericope challenges the future when Jesus speaks to a Canaanite woman, which seems strange that she's Canaanite since these people were supposedly slaughtered in Joshua. Remember the seven nations slaughtered? He calls her a dog. He plays on the classism, racism, and religious superiority at work in the social system. He looks down on her because, of course, she's an oppressor, right? Oh, you white, cisgendered, Samaritan, Canaanite woman. I'm just joking. But some of us are too woke and we know what you're talking about, right? He calls her out. And yet, she answers back to him. He has a change of heart. He heals her despite her being unclean or toeba. Jesus then goes on in Matthew 23 with woes. 
Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have never practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of green and self-indulgence. You blind legalist. First clean the inside of the cup and dish. Jesus sets forth that outward purity, ritual, and sacrifice do not matter. He then goes on to talk to the religious people and how he loves him, even though at their very hands, in the hands of the state, he will die. You snakes, you brood of vipers, two things that are unclean, how will you escape being condemned? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. Truly, I tell you, all this will come upon your generation. And then Jesus turns and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you are not willing. Paul himself preaches against legalism. And then we get this story in the Acts. In the Greek, it says, Kai phone palan eduro prosalton, eothos ekatharsene sumai koine. And you're like, why the heck did you just say that in Greek? Beck, it means nothing to me. It's like Greek to me. <laughs> Koinai, common, profane. And what God has made clean, you should not call profane. See, Peter was under the delusion that hanging out with a certain group of people because what they ate, what they allowed to enter into their mouth, what they had sex with, who they had sex with, how different they were would somehow make him unclean. The animals the Canaanites used for sacrifice were delivered to Peter three times. Yet the message is clearer than that. Socially, Peter was afraid of eating with Gentiles or associating with him. Yet the purity codes and piety separation modes were obsolete. The word here is a katatharisine. The Greek word for unclean, profane, is very much like impure. Not good, impure. Very similar to toeba. God has now decreed that all persons are clean, Despite what enters into their mouth, what bodily fluids are exchanged, what boundaries they cross, or what customs they have. After the old legalists argue with others, something happens in Jerusalem, and they finally agree in Acts 15 to love on the Gentiles, and boom, the gospel burns like wildfire across everywhere. So the question remains to us, are we treating people like they are unclean because of their customs, the way that they handle bodily fluids, the way that they eat, dress, or what enters into their body? Are we calling people unclean? In light of these scriptures, should we? Do we practice legalism? Is that what God requires? Does God want us to sacrifice bulls, live a holy external life instead of a life of holiness that reaches others. I hope this is good news to you who have been judged, who've been told that you're unclean or impure. I hope this is good news to those of you who have been bound up by religion and not set free. I hope you feel some freedom breaking through. 
if we take a hard look at scripture, it bends towards redemption. And those scriptures misuse out of context without historical context or original language have been used to bash, to hurt, to separate. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. No matter what you put in your mouth, what comes out of your mouth, except for your words, if we hurt others, no matter who you sleep with, no matter what you eat, God loves you. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to worship with us in person, our services are Sunday mornings at 10 a.m.-ish. We are at 486 Park Ave in Southeast Atlanta, across the street from Grant Park at the corner of Park Ave and Sydney Street. To find out more about us or get in touch, visit our website at parkavbaptist.com. Now go into the world that is too often unjust. Knowing that the God who created you loves you and empowers you. To love boldly. Live inclusively. And to serve creatively. Amen. Amen.